This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, reflecting upon the messianic prophecies of scripture, let's go to the throne of grace and ask God's guidance on our study this morning. Our Father, we are so grateful that we can come together, that we can celebrate the birth of our Savior, that all of human history looked forward to that event. And then when it came, it took place in a way that probably was not imagined, but every aspect of it was a fulfillment of prophecies that had been made for thousands of years. And when we looked at how it was fulfilled, we knew that those prophecies were absolutely correct in every detail. So, Father, now as we come to reflect upon those prophecies and their fulfillment, I pray that they might have an impact upon our spiritual motivation, that it may be clear to us that what we believe is absolute truth, that you not did not expect us to put our brains into neutral, to somehow just accept some religious uh, pr- uh, religious pronouncements, uh, setting aside reason, setting aside evidence, but that there is more than sufficient evidence that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah, descended from David, and the one who fulfilled so many many prophecies at that first advent. And we pray that you would guide our thinking today in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles. Uh, Well, just hold off on that until we get a little further along in what we're studying today because we're skipping around in our study as we are continuing our series on the incredible messianic prophecies of Scripture. And today we're looking at the fulfillment of these prophecies that we have looked at last week and the week before. And the focus now is on how they were, how they were fulfilled. God created Adam and Eve four or five thousand years ago. Now you hear me say that, and the reason is is because according to the Masoretic text, which may have been tinkered with, we would put 
That's what our Old Testament is based on. And we would put the creation of Adam and Eve around 4,400 B.C. The Septuagint differs by 100 years on almost every on the birth of almost every individual in the genealogy in Genesis 5. There are many reasons to believe that the Septuagint, which was translated from Hebrew uh, originals about 200 years before Christ, is more accurate, and that will be covered when we get to the Chafer Conference in March. But that would put creation at about 5300 B.C., not a huge difference, but significant. So the first prophecy that we looked at was really given about 5,200 years or so, according to the Septuagint, 4,100 years, according to the Masoretic text, before it was fulfilled. And there were numerous other prophecies that were given. And it took some four or 5,000 years for the Lord to fulfill that promise. Why did it take so long? because God was preparing humanity for the coming of that Messiah. And part of that preparation was that he was going to give uh, a large number of prophecies in order that uh, Jesus would be recognized as the Messiah when he came, because he fulfilled those things. In Galatians 4.4, we read, But when the fullness of time had come... Fullness of time, that means when everything was ready, you had the Roman Empire and the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, that that covered much of the known Western world. Everything in the Roman Empire surrounded their private lake called the Mediterranean Sea. And because of that peace and many, many other factors, the time came. Scripture says, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So that's what we are actually looking at. We're looking at these prophecies, and by way of review, we saw that there was a test. Just because somebody comes along and says, well, God told me to say this, doesn't make it necessarily so. And that there are many people who have come along over the centuries who have said that God spoke to them and people follow them and people listen to them. But God wanted to make sure that there were tests that, that you, that we were to evaluate those who made such claims. And so we looked at those tests and the first was that a prophet's message must not contradict uh, confirmed scripture in any way. He couldn't come along and say, uh, let's go after these gods. These gods are just as good as Yahweh. We'll just include them all together. You couldn't do that. It had to be in exact conformity to other accepted revealed scripture. Second, we saw that every detail must be fulfilled exactly that if there was any variation, if it was only 99.9% true, then he was a false prophet. And the penalty for being a false prophet was the death penalty because God did not want anybody else claiming to be his messenger unless he had authorized it. So there are tests, and everything in the Scripture that has been fulfilled in prophecy, and I've taught through those many times, uh, conform to that those rules. 
A defined prophecy for us is the impartation or disclosure of information from a supernatural source. Sometimes God directly appeared to or spoke to individuals. Sometimes it was the angel of the Lord, who in fact is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes it was another angel, such as Gabriel or Michael. And sometimes it was a prophet revealing to someone else. But ultimately there was a supernatural source behind it. And so this disclosure of information from a supernatural source to mortals who cannot and could not discover this knowledge through finite human reason, could not discover it through experience or any other means, it's a disclosure that is beyond human cognition, wisdom, or logic. That doesn't mean it's illogical or irrational. It's just that you can't get there on the basis of logic alone or reason alone or experience alone. At times, God has chosen to make known to his servants the prophets information about the future, which is always completely accurate. In fact, only the living, omniscient, omnipotent God could do this. We've looked at passages a couple of weeks ago in Isaiah 41 where God says, okay, worshiping the idols, let them show things that are to come hereafter. It's constantly challenging the false prophets. Tell me what the future is because they can't do it. And so this was a sign that he is the one and only God. As in Isaiah 46, 9, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done or not yet fulfilled. Jesus, when he appeared after the resurrection to his disciples, uh, also appeared to two, not of the twelve, who were going home from Jerusalem uh, to their home in Emmaus, which is probably four or five miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking about all the things that had happened the previous week with the entry of the Lord into Jerusalem, with the way in which the uh, religious leaders of Israel challenged him, all the way up to his arrest, his uh, crucifixion, and his resurrection and appearance to the disciples. And, and they were struggling to process all, all of this, even though they knew the Scriptures. And Jesus appeared to them, somewhat veiled, so they didn't recognize him right away. And after hearing them talking about all of these things, he began to help them understand them. And we're told in Luke twenty four twenty seven that he began with Moses and the prophets. He goes back to the very beginning of the Pentateuch, and he began to walk them through all of the prophecies that related to him. Now, that's just absolutely amazing. I would have loved to sit in on that conversation. How many prophecies are there about Jesus in total? How many relate to the first advent? How many relate to the second advent? A, a Jewish convert, man who was brilliant, who was Jewish, came uh, was quite a scholar, came to understand Jesus was the Messiah when he was in his 20s. Uh, later, he would write several books about the significance of Jewish practices and Jewish culture and understanding the Gospels. His name was um, Adersheim. 
and Alfred Adersheim. And he said that there were some 450-something prophecies in the Old Testament. Now, it depends on how you define prophecies. There's a Protestant theologian from the late 20th century, J. Barton Payne, who said there were 500 prophecies about Jesus. Now, what are you including? Are you including types? Are you including multiple references to the same thing? I mean, there's a lot of different ways to count them. So most people, most theologians and pastors just say there were well in excess of over 200 prophecies. Anytime you get beyond two or three being fulfilled in one person, the odds that it can happen are virtually impossible, as we'll see. So we define the term Messiah as one who is anointed or appointed for a mission, and in the scripture, this is an anointing or appointing by God. It's used of priests, kings. It's used even of unsaved Gentiles, such as Cyrus, uh, who was appointed by God to send the Jews back from their exile back to the, so that they could return home. It's even applied to Lucifer. Satan, before his fall, was called the anointed cherub who covers. So... We walked our way through these prophecies, looking at some prophecies in the law, some prophecies in the prophets, and uh, one prophecy in the in First Chronicles related to the writings, the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible: the Torah, the Ketuvim, and are the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. That is based on the first consonant of each word, the Tanakh, which is the uh, Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures. So we started by looking at the seed passages, and I've rearranged these for uh, organizational purposes this morning. But we looked at the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would give a head wound to the seed of the serpent. We then went to Genesis 9.25 and saw the prediction that uh, it would come through the line of Shem, then third, we saw the Abrahamic covenant. It would come through the line of Abraham, a descendant of Shem. And fourth, we saw that it would go through his sons Isaac and Jacob, through Judah and prophecy in Genesis 49, uh, 10, and which is related to the prophecy in Numbers 24, 17. Now, look at these. The first prophecy is given around 4100 or 5300 B.C., before Christ, how many people can predict what's going to happen tomorrow? I don't know about you, but I was in a church once, and I had uh, I had three of the four elders were entrepreneurs, and they always wanted me to set down a business plan for the year. And I said, no, I can't tell you what I, how many things I put down that is going to be on my do list for tomorrow, and I don't get any of them done for another three weeks. That's how most of us are. Uh, other things interfere, intervene. How can we predict what's going to happen 5,300 years later? Uh, the line of Shem was predicted after the flood in approximately 3,300 B.C. The line of Abraham uh, in the Abrahamic covenant given around 2,100 to 2,050 B.C. The line of Isaac Jacob through Judah is around 1,850 B.C. Then we have the Davidic covenant, the line of David. And that's around, uh, those, those statements are around 990 BC. The, the Davidic covenant is recorded approximately the time it was given, and that would be around 990 BC, a thousand years before Christ. 
It's reiterated in First Chronicles, which was written after the return from the exile, around 450 to 333. No one knows exactly when First Chronicles was written. And uh, it's referred to in Amos around 750 B.C., about the same time as Isaiah uh, gave the prophecy on the virgin birth in Isaiah 714. And then you have the prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, in Micah 5.2. That's 730 years before the birth. And then the promise of the star is given in Numbers 2417, which was written by Moses around 1406 B.C. Isn't that amazing? The the only one that comes close is First Chronicles, and that's between four, 450 years, 333 years, but it's just reiterating what was stated in a prophecy in Second uh, Samuel 7 around 990 B.C. These are only eight prophecies. I wonder what the probabilities are that eight prophecies, even made five days ahead of time, would come true. We'll find out. So we trace the line of the seed of the woman. And the line of the seed of the woman goes from Adam to Noah, uh, Genesis 5, Noah through Shem, to Abraham in Genesis 9 to 11, Abraham to Judah, Genesis 12 through 50, Numbers 24, 14 and 17, and Amos 9, 25 mentions the star and the scepter that belongs to Judah, the, the tribe of Judah, and then to the house of David in Second Chronicles 17, 10 to 14, and then Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin birth, and Micah 5, 2, that he's born in Jerusalem. That gives you a straight line to just identify this Messiah on the basis of just eight prophecies, and we've got over a hundred. So remember, we're just talking about a small percentage. Remember, we looked at the first prophecy, Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve had sinned, God identified what the consequences were for each of the participants. The immediate consequence was spiritual death. Spiritual death happened instantly when God came to walk with Adam and Eve. They ran and hid because they were afraid of him. That tells you they're already spiritually dead. So the curse in Genesis 3, uh, 14 and following isn't the, isn't describing spiritual death, but the consequences of spiritual death. And he addresses the serpent and says, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, fatal wound, and you shall bruise his heel. And that also involves a death, that the serpent is going to bruise the heel because if a poisonous viper bites you on the heel, you're going to die just as certainly as if it bites you on the shoulder or the neck or any place else. So that is the, that's the beginning that this, this Redeemer, this Savior in this proto-evangelium is going to be human, the seed of the woman. But there's an odd sense there, I pointed out, that seed is what is the Greek is sperma. That's produced by the male, not the female. So there's something unusual that's going to take place. The second thing we saw, second, two, three, and four, all focus on the line of the seed as it developed from Shem one of Noah's sons, he had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. The line of the seed goes through Shem, 
and then from Shem to Abraham and Abraham to Judah. And so this covered this prophecy. And in Genesis 9.27, we read, May God enlarge Japheth, and may he, it's usually translated lowercase, but uppercase. The he there doesn't refer to Shem. Shem's the subject of verse 26. The he refers to the God of Japheth. May God enlarge Japheth, and may God dwell in the tents of Shem. And the key to understanding that is is that word shakan. Shakan, it's the verb from the noun shekinah. Shekinah means the dwelling presence of God. That's exhibited by glory. So we call this shekinah glory, but shakan means to dwell, and it means specifically to dwell in a tent. That's fulfilled in John 1.14. And the word became flesh. The word is another title for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is talking about the incarnation. This is the verse for Christmas. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Greek word for dwelt is skene, which is a cognate of shakan. There, that word shakan has, shows up in a number of different languages and slight, pronounced slightly differently, but has those three main consonants, S, K, and N. And so it is used by Jesus, or by the, by John in John 1.14. Uh, skenao means to dwell in a tent. So this is a fulfillment of the Genesis 9:25 to 26 prophecy. Then we looked at the line of Abraham. Uh, the line of Abraham is uh, spelled out in the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12:2 and 12:3, where Abraham is commanded by God to be a blessing. And then in verse three, God says, "And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed." And again, later toward the uh, after Abraham has attempted to sacrifice his son Isaac in response to God's command to do so, God provided a substitute, and then God reiterated the covenant. And in verse uh, 18, after re- repeating it, he said, In your seed, now I told you, a seed can be singular or it can be plural. It's what's called a collective noun, like our word deer. You can see one deer or a thousand deer, but it doesn't have a plural ending. You have to look at context. But in Genesis 22:18, I said that the problem with the King James is that it, it translates the word seed up here in verse 17 as a plural. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. The problem is the Hebrew has a third person singular pronoun in the Hebrew. So it says your seed singular shall possess the gate of his enemies. That's talking about the Messiah. Even the 1917 edition of the Jewish publication Society Tanakh recognizes this, and notice in verse 17 it says, Thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. 
So most English translations take it as plural, which is wrong, and it loses the messianic significance of that prophecy. So we've got Shem, Abraham, and then we have Judah, Genesis 49:10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So based on these three prophecies, the line runs from Adam to Noah, Noah to Shem, to Abraham, Abraham to Judah. Now, what's the, how do we know that? We know that because they had records. We don't have them today, except for what's in the scripture. But all of these genealogical records were kept in the temple. But when the temple was destroyed in 70, these genealogies were lost. But they were available during the time of Christ. So when the the gospel writers were writing and said Jesus was a descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham and gave the whole lineage in, in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, then what happens is, uh, what happened in the first century is that those Jews, to my knowledge, not a single Jewish antagonist challenged Jesus' genealogy because they could go to the temple and prove it. Later, after the temple was destroyed, they still didn't challenge the genealogy. They just said that Mary had an affair with some Roman soldier. And so it really wasn't a virgin birth. But they, to my knowledge, they never challenged his Davidic descent. So Genesis 5 traces the line from Adam to Noah. Genesis 11 traces the line from Noah to Abraham. Then if you go to 1 Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles chapter 1 through chapter 7, that big chunk you get to when you're reading your Bible through in a year, and you say, oh good, I can catch up, I can just skip those seven chapters. You know, but, but it gives all the details in the genealogy, tracing the seed. First Chronicles 1, 1 through 4 traces the line from Noah through the three sons of, I mean, from Adam to the three sons of Noah and the descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Then in 5 through 16, it traces the descendants of Ham and then the descendants of Japheth. And then in 17 to 54, it traces, um, the, the lines of the other sons of Abraham all the way down. And in First Chronicles 2 and First Chronicles 3, it, it takes the line all the way through David and then traces down all of his descendants. So when Matthew is writing his genealogy and Luke is writing his, they have scripture to go to in order to substantiate that as well as the birth records that are in, in the temple. So there was authentication God doesn't operate in a vacuum, and he doesn't operate in private. He does things in public with authentication. And that's why uh, you have passages like Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection of Jesus, said that Jesus appeared to his disciple with what? Many convincing proofs. God doesn't... Christianity and Judaism, biblical Judaism before it, were not mystical, Okay, they're based on facts and evidence. Okay, then we're going to come to the fifth through the seventh prophecies, and they all focus on the house of David, the giving of the Davidic covenant and the consequences. So you have the house of David as the background. And in Amos 9, 11, and 12, we looked at the prophecy that is, uh, the underlying portion shows a connection with the prophecy in, uh, in Numbers 
about the uh, scepter of Judah and the star of Israel. We'll come to that in a, as the eighth point. But in Amos 9.11, we read on that day, looking forward to the time when, when the Messiah comes victoriously, on that day I will raise up the temporary shelter, sometimes translated the booth of David, which has fallen down and repair their broken places. Now, this is important because in the, it's not always translated correctly, but there is a, that word there, the pronoun is a plural, and the broken places refers to the brokenness of Israel when they split apart in the civil war under Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and you had the beginnings of the northern kingdom, the ten, those ten tribes. So there comes a time when this person is going to come and he's going to repair the breach between the northern and southern kingdom. Uh, and then it, the next thing is it says, um, and repair the broken places. Uh, I will, and the broken places uh, c- continues that idea of uh, the, the fallen down repaired their broken places, that is, the, the split up of the nation. And then the ne- second line is, I will praise, I will raise up his, that's a masculine singular, his ruins. So that refers to David, the his. Doesn't refer to the booth or the temple, or the, excuse me, or the tabernacle. Why? Because that's a feminine noun, so this is a masculine noun, so it can only refer to, back to another masculine noun, so that would be David. I will raise up his ruins by, uh, he's predicted that the house of David somehow is going to go into collapse, but it doesn't disappear. And this coming one is going to raise up the house of David again. And third, and rebuild her. Now what does the, uh, her describe? Uh, it's the second David, uh, and rebuild her, that is the house of David, the, the booth of David, that is the feminine noun up above. So all of that in verse 11 is a prophecy of a future rebuilding of the house of David, the uh, temporary booth, uh, and all of that will be rebuilt. All of these relate to the house of David, which is established in the Davidic covenant. It's given in 2 Samuel 7, but in first, I chose First Chronicles because it focuses more on the Messiah than Solomon and because it's in the writings. So we've had prophecies in the law, the first division, and in the prophets, and here's one from the law. And in the covenant with David, we saw that God promised to build him a house or a dynasty, uh, promised to establish his kingdom, uh, reiterated the promise of a dynasty in verse 12, and a throne. So in the Davidic covenant, we have the promise of an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. So what we have at this point is following the line takes us straight through the Davidic covenant. So it tells us that this future Messiah who comes is going to have a lineage that can be traced. It's traced through Shem, Abraham, and David. What else do we learn? Another House of David reference we looked at last time, it's the promise of the virgin, the sign of the virgin birth. Now, that's important 
Because what people will miss is that you have some plural pronouns and you have some singular pronouns in the Hebrew. They're glossed over with because in English you have a you. A you is singular or plural. Unless you're from the South, then it's y'all. So I prefer to always translate the plurals that way. And in Isaiah 7.14, that would read, Therefore the Lord himself will give y'all the house of David. Not you, Ahaz, singular, but the house of David is given a sign that, that this conspiracy uh, by the alignment of uh, Pekah and uh, resin in the uh, given in the first part of that chapter is not going to be successful at destroying the house of David. And that's what's in the context. Context in verse 2, it was told to the house of David. Context of verse 13, the verse right before this. Then he said, hear now, O house of David. So Isaiah 7.14 is addressed to the house of David that the sign of a virgin would demonstrate that the Davidic covenant would be fulfilled in one who was eternal and one who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. This is seen in the Matthew genealogy as um, uh, as that is stated in uh, in Matthew 1, 18, 20 to 21 by, uh, by the scriptures. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. She is a virgin and she has a virgin conception. Matthew one twenty, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's another really great verse to use at Christmas because it's got the gospel in it. So all this was done, Matthew writes, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And Matthew one twenty five, and he, that is Joseph, did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So that takes us through the 5th, the 6th, and the 7th. All three of these deal with the house of David. The 7th prophecy was in Micah. Micah wrote about the same time that Isaiah wrote. And Micah has the prophecy of the place where the Messiah would be born. In Micah 5.2, in Bethlehem of Ephrata. Ephrata was the man who originally founded the, the town. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah. Now, the reason he says Judah is because there was a Bethlehem in the north. So it makes it very clear it's the Bethlehem that's just outside of Jerusalem. Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Then Matthew 2 begins, now after Jesus was born in, in Bethlehem of Judea. So this is, is significant to understand that, that the Matthew 
I mean the uh, uh, Micah five two passage is fulfilled, stated to be fulfilled in Matthew two. One, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Now what's interesting here is all the confusion about who are the Magi. The Magi, and I've talked in detail on this, were a tribe of the Medes. Remember the Medes and the Persians. Daniel was made a chief of the Medes. Daniel understood when Jesus would be born, Daniel 9. We're not covering that prophecy this time. But the Medes, I mean, excuse me, the Magi became elevated among the Medes as the tribe that would appoint the king in the Parthian Empire. The Parthians almost unsat and killed Herod, so he was always paranoid about him. So the me the the magi excuse me the magi were Parthian kingmakers, and these Parthian kingmakers showed up on Herod's doorstep, knocking and say, "Hey, show us where the king of the Jews was born," and it wasn't him. His panic factor went sky high. Okay, that's why he's so scared. So this makes a lot more sense than some of the other things that are said about about the magi. That's why I don't like to call them wise men. They weren't quote, wise men, they were of the tribe of the Magi. So they say, we've seen his star in the east and come to worship him. And when the king heard this, he was troubled, all Jerusalem with him. So he sent for the chief priests and scribes to come and ask them, well, where's where's this Messiah going to be born? And in verse 5, it says, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you Bethlehem, and then they quote Micah 5, 2. So it's very clear that it was understood as messianic in the Old Testament. It's fulfilled with Jesus. And then they, the Magi departed from Herod. They followed the star, and it indicated a specific house. And then they came to that house, and there they worshipped the newborn king. Luke 2, 1 through 4 also identifies Bethlehem and the fulfillment there. In verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to what? He doesn't just say to Bethlehem, but to the city of David. See, he's connecting the dots to the to the uh, Davidic covenant, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David wants us to pay attention to that. And then it's reiterated later on when the angel appears to the shepherd, and he says, for there is born to you this day in the city of David. So three times it's emphasized in Luke 10, uh, Luke 2, that this is the house of David. So all those prophecies about the house of David focus on Bethlehem, the virgin birth, and uh, the city of David. So uh, this is the birthplace of the the uh, Messiah. And then last, the eighth one is the prophecy about a star. In Numbers twenty four seventeen, the prophecy given by Balaam reads, "I see him talking about the Messiah, but not now. It's a long way off. I behold him, but not near." A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall arise out of Israel. So what's what's Jacob's other name? 
Israel. So there's a parallel there. So a star shall come out of Jacob. There's a star. Now, that this was understood as messianic. If you go back to the uh, first Jewish revolt against Rome in A.D. 66 to 70, uh, after the temple was destroyed, after Jerusalem was destroyed, uh, the whole religious uh, structure in uh, Ju- Judea was destroyed. So there was a meeting of the Pharisees. Sadducees had nothing to offer. Only the Pharisees did. And they restructured Judaism at the Council of Yamnia. And the guy who was in charge of, of this uh, was a rabbi who was um, Rabbi Akiba. And he was a virulent hater of followers of Jesus. So he was very instrumental in starting to change a few of the messianic prophecies so they wouldn't sound like Jesus fulfilled them. Change the numbers, probably. When I talked earlier about Genesis 5 and 11, that's when these numbers start getting messed with so that they can't point to Jesus anymore. So anyway, uh, he found an alternate Messiah and changed his name to Bar Kokhba. So the second Jewish revolt is also called the Bar Kokhba revolt, and that doesn't take place until you get to about 134. But Bar Kokhba is around all this time, and you know what Bar Kokhba means? Son of the star. What that tells you is that they clearly understood at the end of the first century and into the second century that Numbers 2417 was messianic, and they applied that title to him. So the star is fulfilled in Matthew 2. When uh, the Magi showed up, they said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. In Matthew 2, 9, uh, after the king Herod had made his statements, they departed, and the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Let me tell you. The star was supernatural. It's the Shekinah glory. You read all these things from astrologers about the confluence of various planets. If they were so close to that house that they could indicate which house on the street was where Jesus was, the planet would have been destroyed. So this is the Shekinah. The glory of God indicates where the child is, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding joy. So what are the chances? What's the probability that only eight prophecies, that's what we've covered, eight prophecies, that eight prophecies could be fulfilled in one person? A man by the name, a mathematician by the name of Peter Stoner wrote a book called Science Speaks, and in there he talks about this, and he says the chance that any man might have fulfilled all eight prophecies is one in ten to the 17th power. That would be one in 100 quadrillion, one followed by 17 zeros. I think it's easier to win the lottery than that. He goes on to say, to illustrate this, if you take 10 to the 17th silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas, they will cover all of the state two feet deep, Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly. Then blindfold a man and tell him that he can 
travel as far as he wants, go wherever he wants, and he must pick up that marked silver dollar. The chances of him doing that is impossible. That's the same chance of one man fulfilling only eight of the prophecies. But more than 100 were fulfilled by Jesus at the first coming. So the issue is, why should not you believe the prophecies in Scripture? There's more than enough evidence. The reason people don't accept Christ as Savior is because they're suppressing God's truth and unrighteousness. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. And when we witness to people, we need to know the facts, and we need to give them the gospel and make it clear, but we're not the one who convinces them. It's the Holy Spirit. So don't worry when you give your best shot, and it may be really bad at first. We all agree with that. You may get some things wrong at first, but the only way you're going to get things right and improve is if you stumble a hundred times. But it's up to God, the Holy Spirit, to convince them. And you can give the worst presentation in the world of the gospel, and God, the Holy Spirit, can use it to get somebody saved. When I read through church history and read what verses were used by the Holy Spirit to convince somebody that they needed to trust Christ, and I read that verse in context that has nothing to do with salvation, I realize the Holy Spirit is a more effective evangelist than I am. So that ought to encourage all of us, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for such clear evidence in Scripture, so clear that that anyone could understand that Jesus is the only one in history who could fulfill and does fulfill all of these prophecies. We've only looked at eight, and even that would be impossible if it were not for your involvement in making these absolutely perfect predictions. So, Father, we thank you for the clarity of Scripture. And, Father, we pray that if anyone is listening to this, that they would come under the conviction of God the Holy Spirit, that he would convince them of the truth of that which is said, and so that they, too, would trust Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the one who came to save his people from their sins, and that by believing in him, we have everlasting life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.